welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. What an encouragement today. Good to see everyone. Folks, you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you got them with you, Acts chapter 2. I titled this one, Evidence of the Ingathering. Evidence of the Ingathering. Um, continues to be a trying time, as I said, and now with the coronavirus uh, having taken root and, and, and watching that chart its course, uh, we're still feeling the sting as the church has not been spared uh, from that pandemic. Uh, still, you know, the things we can be thankful, those things that were initially mysterious about this virus are beginning to come to light and uh, slowly, and uh, though this virus is very serious, still remains lethal, of course, it's not as contagious as first thought, not nearly as contagious as first thought. You know, there's three or four weeks now that I was talking to Lori beforehand, there have been three or four weeks four weeks, really, that Port St. Lucie, Florida has been opened, and uh, people are slowly returning to normality. The incubation period, I'm told, is two weeks, so either we're going to see something here as far as a heavy second wave quickly, or perhaps there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Over Memorial Day weekend, that's two weeks ago now, there were a lot of people out, and uh, uh, we will see. We will see what happens. We are standing by. Here at the church, just so everyone knows, we continue to use caution on shaking hands. We're continuing to provide a little buffer uh, between us as is comfortable. On this side of the sanctuary to my left, you're going to see that we have spaced every other row. We're going to continue to do that as long as possible for people who desire a little more space. Um, I remain concerned for everyone in our church family, but I, I'm encouraged to see more and more faces coming out as well. Uh, more and more continue to return every week. It, it's been tough being separated. It, it has been really tough. And um, I, I said from the outset, there is no future for Internet Pajama Church. That, that just is never going to work. It's impossible for genuine Christians to remain separated from one another for long periods of time. It's, it's, it's very painful. The church from the, the very beginning has gathered together. We are commanded by the Bible to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And from those whom I've spoken to uh, in person and on the phone, those even who haven't been able to return yet, their hearts are grieved. For 1 John 3.14 tells us that we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. We love the brethren. Uh, So although the season's been painful, the pandemic has also served, uh, it served as a barometer to our hearts, a, a measurement to our hearts as whether there is a true yearning of love toward the Christian brethren. Love for the brethren. And I don't mean just another social opportunity to get out and see people. 
You know, that's what the world is striving for. Can I just get out and be around some people? No, the, the church is not, it, do, it doesn't function as a social club. That we just get out and, and we get to talk to folks. It is a loving fellowship. An in-gathering of the saints that God has called to himself. There's a, there's a love between us that, that can't be substituted by the world. You know, I, I'm thankfully thankful that I can speak pretty candidly to the subject today. Uh, I'm going to hit it a little bit hard. Uh, I'm thankful that nobody's going to have to feel singled out at all uh, because the circumstances we have seen, nobody has to feel self-conscious as to whether they have missed church recently, right? Uh, We gather regularly. uh, We gather often. um, You may have missed for months, and that's Everyone would know that is perfectly excusable, and especially for those who continue uh, to delay, perfectly excusable, your absence is. So, so if this is your first Sunday back for a while, this is not directed at you by any means. Uh, if you are watching online, you're not being singled out at all as we talk about this fellowship of the saints that is an essential practice for Christians, we gather regularly, we gather often. Church attendance is not a bothersome or burdensome duty. It is our longing desire. It is our spiritual yearning. Michael, where have you been, by the way? It is, it's, I, I asked if I could rib them earlier, and it's so good to see these faces. So wonderful to see everyone here. Um, you know, from the beginning of Christ's church, his body, a major focus on the gathering of his elect has been concentrated around the Lord's Supper. Due to the pandemic and everything associated with that, we have not shared the bread in the cup for three months. Three months now. And I'm going to be honest, that fact grieves me it does grieve me. Uh, some churches have tried to improvise uh, in different ways by having people, you know, maybe pick up communion, uh, get it in the mail, uh, return home, watch it on the internet, to each their own. I'm not, I'm not going to condemn that by any means. Uh, but consuming the bread and the cup separately is not the expectation of the Lord's Supper. That, that's not is what is expected as we look at Scripture, dining separately, just having a meal separately. You know, you talk to people, you want to have dinner with us? And uh, they say yes, and I'm like, well, we won't be meeting, you're just going to have it at your house, and I'm going to have it at my house. And It just wouldn't make sense, would it? It really wouldn't. Um, dining together is the natural course of sharing a common meal of fellowship, so rather than to improvise the Lord's Supper, I preferred that we waited until we could again come together within reason, and where we could eat and drink together. You know, even before the onset of COVID-19, the Lord's Supper, it has been marginalized in in many circles. It's been kind of set aside, placed aside, uh, because it takes time. You don't want to add 10 minutes here or there. Uh, Some have significantly reduced frequency, some have, con- some have viewed the Lord's Supper as inconvenient. It's inconvenient. I mean, I'm going to be at church 15 minutes longer. 
Um, others have reformulated communion as to have it at an entirely separate occasion away from others. Uh, a few have eliminated it from worship altogether, fearing that, that new visitors may come and see this, this, this ceremony as a peculiar, uh, a strange practice. What is it they are doing here? But folks, no, none of these aversions to the Lord's Supper is acceptable. Um, never are we given a precaution from the Lord when He institutes this or from the apostles as they reference it. Never are we given a precaution to say, you know, just be careful in exercising this. You don't want to drive anybody away. You know, No, folks. The Lord's Supper can be practiced openly. It is to be practiced openly. No, one's, no one who's being drawn to Christ and salvation in Christ, even if they're not a believer yet, none are going to be driven away by uh, that meal that, the, that our Lord Himself uh, instituted. It's to be served and practiced regularly. It is to be celebrated openly. Communion's not uh, merely a memorial of our Lord's death for our sins. It, it serves as an evangelistic opportunity that eyes might be opened finally through this ceremony for people to see that Jesus is the Christ and through His body and through His blood you are now reconciled to God through Him, praise God. Um, this first this first. Day back for Communion Sunday, uh, we're going to share communion. I wanted to take a short break from Luke. So we're not going to go to Luke and, and uh, pick up where we were. We'll do that next week. I want to elevate, if I can, the importance of the bread and the cup. Yeah, this is not intended to be a really deep theological analysis of anything I, I only want to emphasize the significance of a regular observance of the Lord's Supper, uh, that which always has and today remains uh, central and essential to Christian worship. So, as I read to you from Luke, as I did earlier, I now want to read to you from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. These two are not the usual passages that people turn to uh, for the Lord's Supper to emphasize the breaking of the bread. But they are insightful. We saw that uh, earlier in Luke 24 as the disciples said, uh, our hearts burned within us and, and our eyes were opened when He broke the bread. Uh, in, in Luke, we see that occurring immediately after Christ's resurrection. Here in Acts, it is immediately following the birth of Christ's church on the day of Pentecost. Describes the church's reaction. This was their reaction following Peter's sermon at Pentecost when he had, had told Israel that you have crucified the Christ, that you have killed God's Son. And, and this is the result. It's, it's often referred to as the ingathering. Beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when the crowds heard this, heard this from Peter, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, this is important, those who had received his word were baptized. And and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they had began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God for having favor with all, uh, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, much confusion has arisen over the centuries in the church concerning the, the, the emphases in this passage that were deemed prescriptive for the early church. I mean, it's required that they were prescriptive versus those that were only dis- descriptive of what occurred. In short, verses 43 and subsequent to what I read to you are descriptive. They're descriptive of what happened. For example, the apostles performed many signs and wonders. You know, miracles and signs, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Miracles and wonders were signs of a true apostle. A true apostle had to be one who had seen the risen Christ. Visibly seen Him, physically resurrected. So, So miracles are not prescriptive today, not required today. Uh, organizations that, that claim that they are based on this passage, based on this passage, they rarely sell their property and share everything that they have in common. You follow me? Either it's prescriptive or it's descriptive. You either do it all or you have a reasonable excuse why you don't, a reasonable explanation that is, um, the way that we distinguish what is descriptive here versus what is prescriptive or required, it is reinforcement throughout the balance of Scripture. Where else do we see this in the Bible? Uh, our practices are not established from a single prescription, a single passage alone, but are collaborated by the light of the entire Bible the entire Scripture, as it sheds light on our faith and our practice and what we shall do. We learn later that miracles are a sign of a true apostle. As I said, not all Christians in general. 
private property rights, those which were observed in the Old Testament, established and seen in the Old Testament, are preserved as normative in the New Testament. As you continue to read the New Testament, Christians maintained private homes and businesses. He who does not work, Paul said, neither shall he eat. Each person is to work and earn by the sweat of their own brow, their individual labor, not, not through a method of confiscating it from other people. All right? Not that we, not that we covet other people's stuff. Uh, we are to remain content, Paul writes, with food and covering. With that, we're satisfied. We don't have to uh, prescribe communalism. All right, that's an error that has often been uh, associated with this passage from other groups. And now it's just communalism. You don't own anything and I don't own anything. We're just going to share it all together. And that never works. That never works. There's always someone deciding what, what gets shared. Um, their meetings that they had at the temple day by day. Obviously the temple has been destroyed. No, no longer a prescription there. Saints normally assemble for worship as they did in the Old Testament once a week. Once a week. Now scripture says that normally occurs on the first. The worship day occurs on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And, and it appears that initially, that initially, at first, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, the, the breaking of the bread, house to house. Means they didn't gather uh, for that, at least from what we can see in Herod's temple, you know, the Jewish temple. They didn't bring that in and impose that at the temple. So verses 43 through 47, they're descriptive. Scripture tells us this is what happened. This is just what, uh, what occurred in the church. By comparison, by comparison, the behaviors in verse 41 and 42... The behaviors there, especially 42, are prescriptive for the whole church for all time. Now, how can we know? How can we know? Well, one way that we can know is that each of these is reinforced repeatedly through the remainder of the New Testament. Each of these is reinforced repeatedly. It is, the New Testament is adamant, not only adamant, but repeatedly adamant on all of these stated points. Verse 41 then, so then those who had received his word were baptized. Not the only place in scripture tells us that we are to be baptized, all right? Um, And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Then they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one, and to fellowship, number two, and to the breaking of bread, number three, and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves themselves. That Greek word there that we translate continually devoting themselves, it indicates that they remained steadfast in these things. They were unwavering. They they were resolute. The word also means they persevered devoutly to these things. To what? To what? Well, obviously baptism, the one-time baptism, there was that But then it says they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Um, These describe five essentials. 
five essentials for every Christian church. You can't have a Christian church without these. You've, you've got to have them. They are essential. The apostolic signs, the divine miracles of God in verse 43 that we see occur after this affirms that God, in response to what they were doing, was pleased. You know, he placed his stamp of approval on what he was seeing in the church. Prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, apostolic teaching, baptisms. God's like, these miracles affirm that I like what I'm seeing. All right? So they, they were unwavering in these things. Uh, and God was adding to their number day by day. Um, miracles, signs, wonders, uh, unlearned languages. It's sometimes referred to as tongues, glossolalia. Um, now, uh, new prophecy, which you, which you find people suggesting. And uh, in the later apostolic epistles, we are taught to expect that these will cease. We're taught to expect that these will cease. But these first five will not. These first five will not. Are they exhaustive of everything the church does? Is it everything we do? No, we, we do evangelism. We, we have events. We, we do music. We have uh, different forms of worship. There's church planting. There's ordination, other things that we see in Scripture. Many other biblical functions of the church. But if you don't have these five, if you, don't have, if you set any one of these aside... You don't have a New Testament Christian church. You follow me? You must embrace these five essentials. Here's the interesting thing. Here's the interesting thing. Especially the four, I would argue all five, but especially the four that they said they were uh, continually committed to, they require community. They require community. You can't do church alone, all right? You can't do church alone. Apostolic teaching demands that there is the uh, public reading of Scripture, public exhortation, public teaching of the Word of God, 1 Timothy 4.13. You know, you, you can't just remain at home all alone and, and teach yourself how to be a good Christian. Teach yourself of the doctrines of Christ. Without community, without one another, that teaching, that, that doctrine that you're, you're pursuing will err. It will err. Um, in fact, thinking that you can do church alone at home with just your wife, maybe your dog laying there by your recliner, um, that's the first manifestation of doctrinal error. You follow me? You've already gone off uh, away from the community of God, away from the fellowship of the saints already. You're already in error. Um, it is in devotion to the local community where that error is, is mitigated. Where, where when things are proclaimed openly, that error is eradicated. Uh, folks, if you can put up with us, I've said this many times, if you can uh, withstand us, if you've proven to be forgiving, patient, long-suffering, loving towards us, oh, you're starting to look like Jesus. Because only Christ Himself could love us for what we are. To be able to tolerate and, and, and uh, uh, to, uh, with understanding, deal with offenses and to overlook them and to still love one another, uh, that, that's God within us. 
God lives within all of us. When you start to look like Jesus, we know that it is real. You know, people who can't, just, just trying to be kind here, but people who can't devote to, can't tolerate any local fellowship, uh, but indefinitely go church to church, hopping around, can't find any group of people that they can uh, be with. None are good enough. Uh, n- never can I settle with anyone who calls Christ by name. Uh, those folks are probably not saved. Probably not saved. Um, I've known people who've visited dozens of churches, some that bragged that they visited hundreds of churches, yet none of them, none of those churches are good enough. They can never find one suitable to them. Some, even, some of these even profess solid doctrine. Uh, only God knows their heart. But in reality, it's doubtful they're saved. It's doubtful they're saved. Because what does First John say? By this we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. One of my favorite verses in all in Scripture. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love one another. We love the brethren. Uh, that was, I've, I've heard a great message of the late and great Adrian Rogers on this where he was given evidences of being a Christian. And he said, one is the fellowship test. The fellowship test. And he said, if you are a true Christian, you, you long for, you yearn for that fellowship with other like-minded Christians. This love for one another, it's, it's manifested through a devoted fellowship, a, a devoted union with other Christians. Uh, the Greek term used in verse 42 for fellowship might be familiar to you if you've been around a while. Koinonia. This is the Greek term koinonia. If you've been around a while, you've heard that term. Koinonia implies an active and a permanent, an active and permanent participation in an intimate and a devoted fellowship. Follow that? An an active and intimate participation. Though the term is accepted and understood as, as very exacting. It's a demanding term. Follow me? Koinonia. It demands something of people. Uh, though it is a demanding term, it's employed very broadly throughout the Bible. Very broadly for many different things, and even in secular literature. In fact, koinonia was even used to describe the demands of a relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. So we're talking commitment here. Devotion to one another. The Bible uses koinonia in many ways. I'll share a few with you here. It describes our fellowship, our koinonia with Christ in salvation. We have a koinonia with Him. We have a fellowship with Christ in salvation. It defines the union or fellowship expressed when sharing money with those who are less able, less fortunate, especially used in Scripture, the sharing between churches. Those churches that had some, sharing with those churches who had none. The koinonia again. Uh, It is used to describe a harmony of doctrine, a fellowship of doctrine, like-minded people as we saw in Acts chapter 2 as we read. It is used in Scripture to denote a common union with the gospel, 
in evangelism, that we have a fellowship with the work of the gospel, taking it out, a devoted fellowship. It's used in Scripture to describe our common union with the Holy Spirit. That we are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And and it is also used in reference to our physical suffering, our physical sharing, our physical uh, fellowship in the sufferings of Christ as we too suffer for His gospel. Um, It's used of general sharing as seen in our passage, Acts chapter 2. It's used to describe our fellowship with God and with His Son and with one another. That is the koinonia, that we are in fellowship one to another. It's even used, as you thought we might progress to this, it's even used in Scripture to reference our common devotion to one another as it is expressed in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the bread and the cup together, is described as a koinonia, what I'd like us to gather from this, to, to understand from this, is that though the phrase of fellowship is very broad, it applies to many different things that the, that the church experiences, it also describes a very devoted, a very seriously devoted, a sincere devotion to both Christ and to the community of Christ. It's a a mutual devotion one to another. That is the fellowship of God's saints. So the ingathering of Christ's church, they were continually devoted to apostolic teaching, teaching and expressions of love toward God and toward the brethren, the fellowship with the brethren, the koinonia, from the very beginning. Wholly devoted to one another. Uh, What I'd like you to notice is that koinonia, being a very comprehensive, indicating all kinds of worship and fellowship and evangelism, all these wonderful fellowships that we share, uh, though it was so broad, prayer and the breaking of bread are nonetheless separated and singled out in this passage. They were types of fellowship, but demanded special emphasis. Apostles' teaching, fellowship with all the saints, prayer and the Lord's Supper. The significance of corporate prayer and the breaking of bread has this unique emphasis. And when the church assembled, when they assembled for fellowship, it prayed. When the church assembled for fellowship, it broke bread. They broke bread. Uh, Both are unique displays of of unity among the brethren. In the bread and in prayer we, we express unity. It was not unusual for the early church to pray, uh, to gather specifically to pray. Just to pray. Not a whole lot different than what we do on Wednesday evening. We gather foremost to pray. Um... When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, you'll find that in John chapter 17. That was on the night in which he was betrayed, by the way. When he prayed that high priestly prayer uh, at the conclusion of the Lord's Supper, one of the most significant themes that he expressed in that prayer was unity. 
as the Father and the Son are one, He prayed to, the, to His Father that we too would be one. That we would have fellowship one to another and with God Himself. Uh, as the Son is with the Father, He says, So also may these, meaning His disciples, be one with the Father. And so we know that Jesus' utmost concern on the night in which He was betrayed, the night before His crucifixion, His utmost concern on that night was that His disciples, really all of His followers, would pursue harmony in the local church. Harmony in doctrine. Harmony in, in, in worship. Harmony in prayer. Harmony in the Lord's Supper. It's a divine prerogative uh, to, to restore and preserve the unity in this context. It, it, it's, it, in the clearest instruction of the Lord's Supper, here we find uh, in the Gospel of John a, a, a very, a very Devoted concern that everyone would be of the same mind, alright? And we see that in Acts chapter 2. They were, they were continually of one mind together. We find it written again in 1 Corinthians. Very clear instruction about the Lord's Supper. Gives us great insight. Even insight that we don't find in the Gospels concerning the Lord's Supper. We've been studying this, by the way, if you've been with us on... On Wednesday evenings, we've been studying this letter of Paul to this church in Corinth, where we find this, this kind of, in a sense, short dissertation on the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, we've been studying it for some time. We found that the division within that local church in Corinth, oh, it, it was bad. It was really, really bad. It was disturbing, the division there. There was little unity in that church. The unity that was displayed, that they did share, was manifest in being baptized in the name of men. They were receiving baptism in the name of men. And they had their little groups that one was baptized in the name of Paul, one little group was baptized in the name of Apollos, another little group was baptized in the name of Cephas. That's where they had their unity. In little groups, subgroups. There, there was dissension. It was disturbing. Um, it was sectarian baptisms performed in the name of men. There was widespread sexual immorality where those in the fellowship in the koinonia were defrauding one another in the marriage bed. That's how bad it got. Um, they were filing lawsuits against one another to settle disputes. Settle disputes. And the division uh, caused by all of this, this internal dissension, it, it was ginormous. It was just ginormous. It, everybody was, was divided. There was, no, there was no harmony when they came together to share the bread and the cup. Probably where the division was no more pronounced than in the Lord's table. 
in the Lord's table, at the Lord's Supper. Uh, there were such divisions. There were factions amongst them. Uh, it, it was common at this time that the church was still sharing an entire meal. Probably heard of it called the love feast, right? That at this time it was still common that they shared an entire meal where at the end there would presumably, presumably, excuse me, presumably be a ceremonial sharing of the Lord's Supper. Feigning unity. Pretending how they're all one after they've, they've ate separately. But they didn't take the Lord's Supper together. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? You don't have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? And shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Says the Apostle Paul. He goes, in this I will not praise you. I will not. So on the Lord's day, they were presumably, they were eating what they thought, or what they presumed was the Lord's Supper. Separately. Divisively. Some who had much, they feasted leaving nothing, little or nothing, for the poorer brethren. By the time some had arrived, it is said that some of those had already eaten. Some had drunk to the point where they had become drunk. And there was division. Um, This factional observance of the Lord's Supper, it is what Paul says was practiced in an unworthy manner. You've heard that before, right? You probably thought that Practicing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner meant that you don't wear a, don't wear a tie, right? Well, that's the unworthy manner. I was, I'm not dressed right. Or some other thing. Our mind goes all over the place when we're thinking, what's an unworthy manner mean? And boy, that has been redefined by churches over the years. The unworthy manner that Paul describes is one in which they were eating separately where they had divisions. Verse 33 suggests having not waited for one another to arrive. You know, they didn't all have watches at that time, right? We're Western world, we're very much, well, we start at this time, we end at this time, right? No, they, they, they gathered it in that day and age as they do in many parts of the world. You go into the mission field, Chuck would be able to affirm this, that you're in Africa or you're in other countries. The church will, will come together at some point in the day. When they all get there, right? And then when you're all together, you shall celebrate the Lord's Supper. They weren't doing that. They were, they were feasting. They were eating. Those who got there early and had a lot, they were leaving little or nothing for those who had not yet arrived. Um, their behavior had offended God so much. This unworthy manner had offended God so much that Paul informs them for this reason some were weak Others had fallen sick, and still a few had even died. God had taken their life because of the way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper. So Paul corrects them, gives them this correction. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. This text is how we know now that that a full meal is not a required prescription for the Lord's Supper in the church. So if you need to eat, eat at home. That's not what we're here for. We're here for unity. We're here for fellowship. It's an occasion. Actually, it's an opportunity. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity to to recommit ourselves to that unity, to examine ourselves in our relationship with the body of Christ. You know, it's not it's not merely to recall the Lord's sacrifice. In, in the bread and in the cup. Yes, that is true. Do this in remembrance of me. It's also an exercise in examining ourselves as, there, as to whether we are truly committed to the faith. Truly committed to one another. Not just showing up now and then. Not, not one foot in and a, or one foot out and a toe in type of thing. But that we would be in a koinonia, a devoted fellowship with God's saints, a loving fellowship. Um, It does. Does it call out the floaters? Yeah, it does. The half-hearted? Sure. The double-minded? Yes. One foot in the world, a toe in the church. Folks, that's not God's plan. That is not God's plan. And if you've been gone for a while, as I said earlier, no one here has pointed out. But it is a time to call God's people to fellowship. It is time to call uh, people to the Lord's table. To have the bread and a cup. If you've been gone for a while, due to the virus or any other reason... God is calling you back to Himself through His church. Through the fellowship of His church. You know, notice here, if you're a professing Christian today, this is a call for you to examine yourself. It's not a call for me to come and examine you uh, uh, to to see if I think that I have the divine omniscience to examine your heart. No, no. This is part of the reason we practice open communion at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. Excluding others, other Christian, from the Lord's table, from the Lord's supper, because we're not sure if their heart is right. That's not the prescription here. Folks, that is the prohibition here. Excluding others from the Lord's supper. Uh, This is an opportunity for all of us to get our hearts right. my responsibility to examine my heart, your, exa- your responsibility to examine your heart before partaking of the bread and the cup. Here's the question. Are you in harmony? Are you in fellowship? Do you have the koinonia with Christ's body, both scripturally and doctrinally? If you are, we invite you to celebrate with us. If you're not, and you're still working through this, by all means, let it pass by. There's nothing forcing anyone here.
to partake in the Lord's Supper. There's no shame in that. Are we in harmony with one another? For if we're not, folks, we're, not, we're also not in harmony with God. That's a fact. Are we serving one another? If we are not, we're not serving God. Are we sacrificing for one another? Folks, if we're not, we're not sacrificing for God. You see, the, the unity, it's not just with the Father and the Son, me and my little own self. Jesus insists the unity must be with one another in the brethren. You can't have fellowship with God without fellowship with one another. Do you have a church family? You visiting from out of town, passing through, going back on your way? Um, it's time to find a church and commit to it. The church, the local body, it is to harmonize doctrinally and spiritually in oneness. And that is to be expressed in the partaking of the bread and the cup together. The question is, are we in unity with one another? This is what we ask our heart. And this is part of the reason that we provide a, a moment of reflection after distributing the bread and cup uh, to examine ourselves. Jesus' prayer for unity on the night in which he is betrayed and the correction that Paul provides to the disunity in Corinth. Folks, that far supersedes that description of the early church that broke bread house to house. The early church would have never practiced, probably would not even have been allowed to practice the Lord's Supper at the temple. They, they had no other place. They didn't have a common location yet beyond their individual homes in which to observe communion. Uh, that was not a display of uni uh, disunity, breaking bread house to house, for they all continued day by day in one mind. They were completely in unity as they broke the bread, even from house to house. Knowing what we know from 1 Corinthians, the division that occurred over the Lord's Supper, uh, I would never dare to divide the church in taking communion. I would never dare do that, for Scripture says, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another.